enter the Ebony Tower podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Ebony Tower podcast. This is Rachel. And this is Daphne. And today we have another episode of Scholar Spotlight, and we have a very exciting guest with us. Want to tell everyone a little about our guest, Daphne? Absolutely. Today we welcome Dr. Ashante Reese, who is a professor at the University of Maryland Baltimore College. Welcome, Professor Reese. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, we are so excited to have you. So we typically start off these interviews by just introducing you to our audience. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic journey? Um, How did you get to where you are? Oh, yeah, those are really good and big questions, I think. Um, So I'm originally from Texas, small town, East Texas. And I always like to start with that because I think um, there's so much in academia sometimes that encourages us to either not think about our beginnings or not be, be proud of where we started. And so coming up in a rural area, going off to college in a city and and then going on to grad school, I definitely went through these periods of time where I wasn't sure how I felt about my background. So that's a nice way of putting it, but I'm super proud of it. And I see the links now of how I grew up with my um, work, which we can talk about later. So I, after undergrad, I went to Trinity University in San Antonio. Um, I majored in history and African-American studies. And after that, I taught middle school at Coretta Scott King Young Women's Leadership Academy in Atlanta and loved teaching middle school. Hated how burnt out I felt from teaching. I felt like I didn't, I I put everything I had into the classroom um, and felt like I was always working. So I always knew I would go back to get a PhD. I applied to American University. Um, Rachel Watkins was my dissertation chair um, and dissertation chair, life coach. Um, Rachel Rachel might be able to speak to some of this too, (laughs) just amazing human being. Shout out to Rachel. Rachel Rachel is probably (laughs) the reason I got through the program. So um, anyway, did my PhD there and did a one-year writing fellowship at Rhodes College in Memphis. And it was one of those programs that after finishing the PhD would, would, assumingly, if if it was a good fit, um, turn into a um, tenure track position. It was not a good fit. And I ended up taking a job at Spelman. Yes. And just to clarify for everyone, so Ashante and I did our PhD program together at American and yes, the mutual did. Rachel we're referring to is uh, another anthropologist who were, was on both of our committees. Um, small world, actually, because Ashante also knew Daphne in Atlanta in the teaching world, right? I didn't know Daphne personally, but yeah, like we had some overlap with Teach for America. So that was really interesting too. So we should talk about all that today. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's such a small world of black PhDs. Every time I meet someone, it's like we know people in common or you go to a similar conference or, you yeah. know, it really is a small world. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your research and what shaped your research interests. Like we're seeing the budding beginnings of it, but like, tell us what really shaped your research. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because, um, 
Do you know when you go to graduate school, some of the conventional wisdom is that you should choose a project that you're cool with doing for 10 years. And I am coming up on 10 years of studying this project. And I was like, wow, Um, that is a real thing. And in terms of starting graduate school and like shaping it through graduate school. Um, But so I write about this a little bit in the book and I've, I've spoken about it other places teaching middle school really did change um, my life. Uh, It changed the course of my life in a number of ways. And one of those was about research. Um, I used to coach track and I had taken some students to go get a physical exam so that they could be on the track team. And then it was late and I wanted to take them to get food. So we stopped at the grocery store that was closest to my house in my neighborhood. And these 11 and 12 year olds who are usually rambunctious were really shy and quiet and Um, by the time I took them to my house for dinner, one of them had asked me or actually made the comment, like, you, you have a really nice grocery store in your neighborhood. And I was like, it's just a grocery store. And then one of the other students said, no, we don't have anything that nice in, in my neighborhood. Um, and it might sound super naive and, and maybe I was then at 22, but I hadn't even really thought about uneven quality of grocery stores. Growing up in a small town, we had two grocery stores and everybody shopped at them. So um, I hadn't really thought much about it because I was still relatively new to cities and the kinds of inequalities that cities produce. And so um, I just couldn't stop thinking about their questions and paying attention to their neighborhood in different ways. I was attuned to their neighborhoods in terms of education, but I hadn't really thought about how that intersected with a number of other things outside of poverty. And so when it came time for me to apply to grad school, I decided that the questions that they asked, I wanted to study them more empirically. So that's how I came to study food. Um, I think once I got into graduate school, that pro- the, the questions that I wanted to ask started to get more and more refined. Um, early on, I was interested in food vis-a-vis health disparities. And so that's what my initial focus was. And then I started to think more about just food and food access as indicators of how people are connected to each other um, on this kind of micro, micro level. But then on this larger level, how um, anti-Blackness and residential segregation, white supremacy, all these things are kind of shaping where people are getting their food. and so, I mean, I don't know if there's, if you want me to go into more detail about that, but that's um, kind of the broad stroke of how I got to studying food. So how exactly do you define food desert? Uh, I don't. <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a number of reasons why I don't. Um, some, you know, it's a, it's a shorthand that people like to use to talk about neighborhoods that have in, inadequate access to grocery stores or supermarkets. And it's a term that in terms of U.S. policy was largely borrowed from um, the U.K., actually. Uh, the reason I don't use the term food desert and a number of scholars no longer use it um, there's this emphasis on this product and not a process. I'm very interested in processes. So not just why are there not equal numbers of grocery stores or, um, or why the quality is not the same across different places. Um, I'm sorry, not just that they are unequal and that the quality is not the same, but the why. And the, the food desert metaphor gets us focused on, on just the product and not the process. Hmm. The other thing is that, um, 
and this comes out in in the book too, which is that every everyone by and large, unless there are like super extenuating circumstances, people who buy food, they end up finding food. They get food somewhere. And so when we say food desert, we are ignoring these other ge- food geographies that people are creating to be able to meet their food needs. Mm, that's absolutely interesting. And I hadn't thought about it like that. And I like how you said your focus is on the process. Another question is, why do you think uh, food has recently been incorporated into like public consciousness and concerns for equity? Yeah, that's those are good questions. Or uh, that's a good question. I think there's a couple reasons. <clears throat> when Michelle Obama launched her "Let's Move" campaign, that thrust um, childhood obesity into a spotlight. That then inevitably got people thinking about food and um, access to healthy food. Um, post "Let's Move" campaign, there were a number of Uh, We can see an increase in grants for studies about food and food access. Um, You can see people like just the the interest just skyrocketed. On another level, though, there was already this interest in it. There's already this interest in alternative food movements. And these were mostly folks who were wanting to divest in corporate food. And so farmers markets, um, community-supported agriculture, know your know your farmer, vote with your fork. These were already movements that were emerging. Um, and so I think what started to happen is that there were, there were Black folks, Brown folks, Indigenous folks who were always doing stuff around food, right, but not necessarily in the spotlight. And a lot of those folks started to challenge the alternative food movement, which is largely been led and by white folks and the the voice has been white the face has been white and we start to see some of that pushback um the other thing uh julie guffman writes about this and um i think we could talk about it but she makes this argument that part of the reason people start getting interested in food and interested in obesity is because it starts it's a capitalist argument right that we start it, it costs more for people to be unhealthy and so of course we need to like ship things, right? That, that, that a lot of this, excuse me, that some of this wasn't about these altruistic um, ideas about health and healthiness or even the health of the environment, but that it just started to cost the U S a lot more money. Um, And so, you know, that shifts the direction in terms of not only focus, but funding toward wanting to understand uh, why people eat what they eat um, and then try to improve it. Never mind the fact that like one of the ways that we could improve everyone's eating is if we held corporations to a stricter standard. But that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Um, But that, you know this kind of individual, I can do better on my own and we should target individual eating um, behaviors, I think is something that we've, we've seen ebb and flow over the years, but definitely in the last 15, 20 years, there's been more of that. And then of course, just have to shout out to, um, food justice movements again, that have been versioning for a while, but like are now, I think getting the attention and getting the, um, getting the credit that they're due for the very local ways that they've been working to fight for a more equitable food system. So interesting. Money moves a lot of things. It does. I'm so interested in this capitalist argument that you were talking about as well, because I've been thinking so much about how health and wellness discourse is actually forming a little bit of 
these different social classes in this country. I'm sure you think about, you must be thinking about this in terms of your work as well, um, that there's a way that a certain healthy way of living, quote unquote, um, is actually a social class marker for people. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I do think about it quite a bit. And, you know, I think it's, it's health. Um, I think we can say the same thing about narratives around self-care, right? Um, how these kind of desires to be better and to feel healthier, to be stronger, to be like, you know, the, the best you, you can be, so many companies are able to capitalize on that and market it back to us. Um, just thinking, for example, about um, when we when we say healthy food, actually, I'll throw this question out to you. When you when someone says the phrase healthy food, what comes to mind for you? Non-processed foods. Non-processed foods. We'll take that. And so when we're at the grocery store, then, right, those very things that feel that are the healthiest for us are the things that cost the most. Right. Part of that is because of the kinds of subsidies um, food processors make it. Um, some of that is because of our obsession with with corn and soy. Right. And how that becomes part of our food system. Um yeah. And the other thing, though, is we can say that about processed foods. And then I know I'll speak for myself. If I go to the grocery store, if I'm going to buy something from those middle aisles that's processed, then I might be looking at the labels. And then you look at the labels and then there's a whole kind of market for organic <laughs> processed food, essentially. Right. Um, <laughs> yep. and so all of that to say that, like. Marketers, corporations, they're really smart. And then, you know, our food system um, in the U.S. in particular is controlled by just a handful of companies. And so even the idea of healthiness gets marketed back to us in all of these different ways. So that if you don't choose it, you know, there's a number of people who will say things like there is no reason for you to not be healthy. And that's a really big statement that I think has to be unpacked for a number of number of reasons. But um yeah, like there's this really great book that I started reading um, recently. It's called Canned, and it's a history of the um, canning industry and processed food industries, and it's by Anna Zeta. And I love it because she goes, she paints, she's a historian, so she painstakingly goes through all of these changes that moved canning from this kind of like thing that you do at home to an industry, and then the fall of that, and then how that gets um taken up by like more broader processes of food, food processing. So anyway, all of that to say like our food system is deeply, deeply tied to like other forms of capitalist production that we, um, sometimes when we start talking about health and healthiness, then we kind of abstract it from that, but it's, we're, we're all, we're, we're deep, we're deep into these different, different systems. Yeah. So I just want to give you a big, like, congratulations. Uh, your first book called Black Food Geographies, Race, Self-Reliance, and Food Access in Washington, D.C. And, like, girl, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. I am really excited, too. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I wrote a book. This is a real thing. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm really, really excited. It's been um, 
you know, it's been a process, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, <laughs> but it's good process. Oh yeah. We're Yay. definitely going to talk about, definitely going to talk about, but before we talk about the process, I just wanted to comment on, uh, how the book is situated in DC and you brought up yep. the question of people who have been doing food justice work, right. I think is how you phrased it. Um, right. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, how your research interests and um, all of these questions about capitalism and food are sort of intersecting with uh, our nation's capital and policy work. Yeah, no, that's um, a really, really great question or set of thoughts to think about. Um, DC is a really interesting city, I think, to do research Um a, because of its history, B, because of this pride around Chocolate City, and C, because you have both the seat of national and international politics coupled with very deeply ingrained inequalities, right, and inequities, so that east of the Anacostia River, right, the median income is three to four times less than other parts west of the Anacostia River, and that that's a big deal, Um and that's what, I guess one way to say it is that I became really, really interested in these kinds of contradictions that happen in this city um, that most people view as a very wealthy city. And then there are still people who live far below the poverty line. And that, again, like Ward 7 and Ward 8, um, the median incomes in each of those wards are less than $50,000 a year. Um, so... There's a couple of things that I would say. When I started my research in D.C., there were four supermarkets east of the Anacostia River. So that's four supermarkets for all of the residents who live in Ward 7 and Ward 8, over 150,000 people compared to, yeah, compared to <clears throat> west of the river where other wards might have, in one single ward might have four uh, supermarkets or nine, as was the case at one point. And um, it's very clear when you map that out by race and class that there are these um, there are these disparities. But then people want to know, is that accidental? Is that intentional? Do supermarkets intentionally avoid poor black neighborhoods or black neighborhoods in general? And I think the answer <laughs> It's complicated, but it's kind of a yes and a no, right? Supermarkets have these metrics that they use to be able to decide where they're going to be. <clears throat> and often, if a supermarket's avoiding an area or if they are closing a store, one of the number one reasons is because they say the store is not profitable. And so one of the frames that I use for the book is to really think about how racial residential segregation becomes a driver for how... Um, resources are distributed. And we know this from sociologists who've done this work for a long time, sociologists and others, but um, <clears throat> looking at it through the lens of, of supermarkets. Um, the other thing about DC that's interesting, so you've got that, that part of the landscape, but you have a number of folk who were doing food justice work when I was doing my research there and still are. And these are people who were really earnestly trying to transform the local food system and doing really, really great work. Um, again, thinking about resources, some of that work was underfunded. Um, a lot of that work was definitely not as visible as it could have been, but there were folks doing things from planting 
um, starting in and planting gardens in different neighborhoods to trying to create uh, CSA models that would be affordable to people who might have been on limited incomes. Um, so all of that is also happening in the background. And then I would say the third level, which is where the self-reliance piece comes in in the book, is where I did my research in Northeast D.C. The neighborhood had a strong history and kind of this public ethos of self-reliance that was part of the telling or the myth of the neighborhood, the retelling of the neighborhood story. And so I started to pick up on that and I was wondering, like, what does this have to do with food? And so in the current space, then there would be people who were not connected to organizations, not connected to food justice movements, who were also just trying to find a way out of no way. And maybe it's my anthropological training, I'm not really sure. Those became the stories that I was most interested in. What are people doing when they're not connected to some formalized structure? Um, And this looked like, yeah, starting these small gardens, renegade gardens, I would say, um, at public housing, figuring out ride shares to get to stores because the local Kroger, I'm sorry, the local Safeway was so bad. So where can you go? And if someone had a car, then, you know, trying to like carpool, Um, all of these different strategies that people had that were really interesting to me. And, And I think goes to thinking about how Black people um, can, at the same time, hope for better and hope that corporations and the government will not be responsive and at the same time be like, you know what, I'm not going to sit here and hold my breath, so I'm going to figure out how to get what I need. So those are kind of the layers that unfolded. That's so, so interesting. And it's definitely, I think, the anthro um, interest in personalized stories and accounts of um, yeah. you know, all of these greater processes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so excited to read this book. I'm definitely going to order it and I hope our listeners do too, um, especially after, you know, you just really went into that. And I, I can just tell that I'm just going to be like so connected to um, the stories um, and, and your work in general. You know, so one thing that I'm wondering, and I know other PhD students or um, postdocs or even professors who listen to this podcast, maybe they're probably wondering about your writing experience, particularly going from uh, doctoral work to book. How was that process? How did you secure your publisher? Publisher, Like, how was it with the book proposal? Like, what was it? Like? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that <clears throat> I was super naive about uh, publishing a book. And I, and I don't know that that's abnormal. I think a lot of folks don't know what it's like to publish a book until you publish a book. With that said, I think sometimes when I'm naive about something, then I just whatever. I just do whatever I think (laughs) makes the most. In addition to like asking mentors. So the very first thing that I did was I sent queries to presses that I thought I was interested in. And I think one of the questions that was on my mind was how do I know what presses I would be interested in when I was um, at that early stage. And I started to think about what were the books that I liked, um, my mentors who were in the food world, who had they published with, asked a couple of them about their experiences. And then, you know, a big one that my mentor, um, Psyche Williams-Forson, asked me once was, where do you want your career to go? She asked me, like, you know, you want to think about not just where you are, but you have no idea where you're going to be 10 years from now. And your, your book is kind of a calling card. And 
the press that you publish with says something about your work and it doesn't mean that it's good or bad, but like, you know, different presses have different strengths and all of that. And so, um, yeah, like I, I sent out queries all but one that I, I, I won't mention the press that never got back to me, but all but one got back to me and were interested and, and kind of talked. And I talked on the phone with some editors about uh, their processes and such. Um, I was really interested in, um, I was really interested in, in California because they publish a lot of great critical uh, food stuff. Um, but I, after talking to an editor and talking to a few people and the editor was great. Like she was very honest that like, sometimes it can take a really long time for books to get out through California. So that was one thing that gave me pause. And the other thing that gave me pause was I had to think about, did I want my book to be a food book or a book that was really about black people in space that happened to use food as the lens through which I was looking at that. And that framing mattered because it shifted everything um, in terms of what I was looking for. And so I ended up going with UNC Press because they do such great things around um, regional identity and race and place. And they've done food. They've done a lot of work in a number of of ways that um, I thought would be helpful for marketing the book. And I will say, you know, few months out from it being published, that was a really great decision. And so do you recommend that people reach out to presses? It seems like you're recommending that. I think so. Like I do recommend it. I think, you know, a lot of people end up doing it at the, um, whatever your, your conferences are for your field. Um, if presses are there setting up meetings and I, I'm working on an edited volume now. And I did that for this, this other book that I'm working on. And that worked out really well. Um, I think that it is not reasonable for anyone to just shoot blindly, um, into the dark for something that's so important to you as this book that you're, you're putting out into the world. And not only just because it's important to you professionally, but it's important to you personally. And you really want to make sure that someone or a press or whomever you're going to work with understands that about understands you understands your work and how you want to situate it um so yeah I do think people should reach out and I one other thing that I'll say here is that when you're when you're quiet enough and you're still enough and you you know done your your due diligence of thinking about publishers you talk to your mentors I think for everyone there are some non-negotiables that show up in that quiet and that stillness and um And I think you should be clear about what those are and be okay with communicating those. Of course, you don't have to go into a meeting being like, these are my non-negotiables. But for an example, when I was getting, when I was settling on presses, one of the things that I knew for sure is that I wanted to have a DC based artist to be involved with designing the cover. And that felt important to me and presses. I I learned uh, don't always give you a lot of input in the covers for your book. And so I made that very clear very early on. And um, UNC had worked really hard to make sure that the cover looked the way that I wanted it to look, but also that it incorporated elements from an artist from the neighborhood where I did my research. So I, I use that as an example, but there might be other things that people feel really strongly about. Um, that just happened to be a non-negotiable for me. Um, 
So that's really awesome. Great advice. Um, something that I want to think about because I know in the future I would like to publish my dissertation, although I have to finish writing it first. Um, but what advice would you have for, I guess, first time book writers, you know, beyond some of the things that you um, just minute mentioned? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that everyone would agree with me on this, but one of the things that I would say is I am not sure that you should spend months on months on months on months on months writing the proposal. And there's a few reasons for this. One, I think that obviously, yes, you should have some sense of, A, if you're moving from dissertation to book, what's going to be different? I think that's the first thing that you figure out. And then also, like, the other thing about a book is there needs to be some kind of, at least in my opinion, some kind of, like, theoretical or narrative frame that connects throughout the book. And so you need to have figured that out. And you should share it with people and you should give feedback. But the reason why I don't think you should spend, like, six, eight, 12 months on your proposal is because ultimately, even after you have done all of that, you still have to do the work. You still have to write the book and it's going to be different. Like even if you have a draft of the book, when you've written the proposal, it's still going to be different and you cannot foresee how it's going to be different. So you just put as much honest effort and care and thought into the proposal as you can, knowing that you should free yourself up to expect that the product might not look exactly what you proposed and that presses expect that. Um, I do think that if you don't have a sense of what's going to be different, whether that's adding more chapters or you take a different theoretical frame or whatever, and you don't know what that hook is going to be throughout your, your work, then that might be an indication that it's not ready yet um, to be proposed to other people and, you know, spend some more time thinking about that. Um, most presses have, <clears throat> I know UNC and a couple other presses have something on their website that talks about, gives some tips about moving from dissertation to book. And I think it's helpful to look at those things. Um, yeah, I think there's that. The other thing is there's all this advice out there about writing and I think people should be serious about what makes sense for them. Um, one of the things that I think is also true about writing a book is that it feels overwhelming when you say I'm writing a book. <laughs> it, it does. It just feels overwhelming. What, what felt less overwhelming to me is thinking about the little pieces. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes those little pieces were like fractions of a chapter and I don't write linearly. And I think that's the other thing people have to know what their style is. Um, I write in circles around everything until it get until it makes sense. And I might start on chapter five and then come back to do chapter one, whatever. And that all of that made me super nervous. But I do people say it all the time, but I do think it's true. Trust the process because everybody has a process. And what we have to figure out though is does your process work? And maybe some parts don't. And then you have to like revise those parts. Um, writing with other people, and I say that very broadly, whether it's you're just exchanging work with other folks or you're actually physically sitting down with writing with other people is really helpful. I had a um, semester leave while I was finishing my book and I was a, <clears throat> I was in residency at the James Weldon Johnson Institute at Emory and with 12 other scholars across the academic uh, trajectory. And that was amazing. Um, 
we all presented our work. We all shared our work with each other. And just even just having people to talk to was really great. Um, we Writing ultimately becomes this thing that you do on your own unless you're co-authoring. But that doesn't mean that we have to be lonely while we're doing it. That's great advice. And actually, you know, speaking about the process of writing, I wanted to know how you balanced um, when you weren't on leave, how you balanced your teaching responsibilities and, I mean, just everything that you have on your plate with the writing of a book. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so I'm not going to lie about that. And I think I'm always still trying to perfect things. One, one thing that is helpful is that I teach at an institution and in a department where I have a lot of flexibility on what I teach and when I teach. So I teach all of my classes on Tuesday and Thursday, knowing that there is probably no writing, actually not probably, there is no writing happening on Tuesday and Thursday. All of my time and attention goes to teaching and students on that day, on those days. And then I try to write in the mornings on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The reason why it feels so difficult is because this is a thing that I I kind of had this aha moment when I started school this year, um, this semester, which was that I'm in my I'm in my fourth year now, and I realized like oh shit like you are deeply entrenched into this <laughs> into this space now. Students know you, your colleagues colleagues know you, you know, and I'm at a small school. All of that to say that it mattered then that there were so many different people who might call on me to ask me to do things. And so I, I, I say all of that to say, I really learned that I'm not as good at saying no as I thought I was. Uh, yes. Because I really wanted to, and I do, like I want to be super supportive of my students and my colleagues and all of this stuff. And so this semester, some things have shifted for me because I have to really practice saying no um, a lot more. And yeah, that's a that's a tough process. But if I don't say no, then that means that in addition to the ways that I already give Tuesday and Thursday fully over to teaching and my students, that Monday, Wednesday, Friday might get um, pulled into that too. So just one strategy that I've, I've turned to using this semester, because I think strategies are helpful. I started using an online scheduler. Um, for people to schedule meetings. And each week I block out the amount of hours that I'm willing to take meetings with students. And then a set, a, another set of hours that I'm willing or able to take meetings with colleagues and community partners. And I have that link to my scheduler and my email um, signature. And when people send me emails asking for meetings, I ask them to use the scheduler. And that keeps me accountable to the amount of hours that I'm willing to do that kind of labor. And it's all outside of the times that I write best. That's great advice. Are you using, are we talking a Google scheduler or like? <laughs> oh, I use, I use Calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y. Um, and the reason I settled on that one is because it was one of the ones that allows me to automatically set up different blocks of time for different constituents. Um, and that felt like what I needed to do. Um, so students can set up, um, if they want a specific time during office hours, they can set that up. If they want uh, a time outside of office hours, I have a certain amount of hours that I'm willing to meet outside of office hours. Um, of course, unless there's an emergency or something like that. But the other thing that I think for students, what makes it so good is it forces them to think about what do they want to meet about? And they come prepared to like 
meet, <laughs> you know, not just to Talk. like, yeah. yeah, they come prepared to meet. So, and that's been helpful for all of us. Yeah. I learned mm. a, a lesson in that this, this past week, um, because I'm at a small liberal arts institution doing a postdoc and I had the mm-hmm. office hours meeting that like turned into an hour and a half with one student. And I was like, Oh, this was supposed to be writing time. And so I'm oh, wow. definitely going to yeah. use that calendar. That's great advice. Yeah. And also like, I think you have to give yourself grace, right? Cause the other thing is, and I told my students this, um, sometimes students don't understand what it is that we do. I actually think most times students don't understand like the level, the, the, we're not just teaching them. We're not just doing research, but we're also serving the college. We're also serving our perspective, our our professional fields. We're doing all this. Um, And I I do think demystifying that for them is helpful, but I also think like giving yourself grace because we do have like 50, 11 jobs in one. We're doing so many different things and, Sometimes it doesn't work that we can sit down to write from nine to 12 because our brain is so cluttered or we're so tired or this is the only time that we can meet with such and such. So it's, you know, it's building in time to 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 think and reflect on what's working for us. And I think that's ultimately what it is. Right. That we don't want to just fall into things that we want to, like, take some time to reflect. Mm. So I agree. And I'll also vouch for the calendar. Um, I don't use it, but my one of my committee members uses it, and I, ske- I scheduled an appointment with him. Um, and yeah, you set up that one appointment, that one more time slot, and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to be really strategic with my time. Um, yeah, it makes you plan ahead. And it's, you know, I feel weird. I felt weird about it when I started it because I didn't want to feel like my relationships with my students were mitigated through this calendar. And then what I realized was that there are also all these other ways that I interact with students. It's just that I have to be clear about these these meeting expectations and boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Protect your time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, our final question, and we ask this to all of our guests um, that we interview either for the podcast or for the website. We have uh, Ebony Tower syllabus um, where we want to put amazing work out into the world. And so we want to know what are you currently reading or what would you uh-huh. like to add to our syllabus? <laughs> With writing, you might not be much, but... <laughs> That is really good. Um, So I already mentioned the book Canned. I really am enjoying reading that. Um, Monica White, who's a dear friend, also writes about food, has this book called Freedom Freedom Farmers. And it's about Black food cooperatives. And it's amazing. And it comes out in December. Um, I just finished reading The Hate You Give, and I read it in like two days. And was just... I really loved it. Like I liked the way she wrote uh, the book and I could imagine reading it as a teenage person, as a young adult. So that was cool. Um, I'm sure other people have mentioned this and I'll just say on the the podcast, um, In the Wake really changed a lot of my thinking about, I think one of the things when you're writing about inequity is that sometimes you can get so caught up in the ways that we aren't meant to survive that we, we actually forget the ways that we do survive and in the wake really helped me 
give me some language and a frame for thinking about how we are able to make it, even though so many systems are set up against us. So there's that. Um, um, I am also a big fan of, I mentioned The Hate You Give. I think we all should read fiction. (laughs) So I've recently been going back to read a lot of Octavia Butler's work, like a lot of other people as we try to figure out this dystopian um, life we are living through. Um, so I've been reading a lot of Octavia Butler and um, I'm looking forward to reading Children of Blood and Bones when I finally get it from the library. <laughs> but that, I would say those things um, and an anthropological classic that really um, gave me hope when I was in grad school that there were these beautiful ways that I could write was uh, Sydney Mintz's Worker in the Cane. I really love that text. Sometimes I teach parts of it to my students. So, yeah, I think those would be the... Oh, sorry. Amy Cox's Shapeshifters. I also read it with my students and really love that book, too. That's great. You've just added, like, a good healthy amount of lit to our syllabus. (laughs) (laughs) I I agree. And I also agree about the fiction thing. Um, So I want to get back into fiction. And I'm also kind of like obsessed with like dystopian, uh, the dystopian genre. I don't know if it's because it it makes me feel like, oh, I guess it could be worse. I I don't, (laughs) in terms of like, I don't know why, but really interesting. Well, we want to say thank you so much, Ashante, for coming on the show and sharing all this knowledge and your interesting research with us. It was so nice having you on the podcast today. Um, And before we go, can you just tell our audience how they can follow you, tweet you, like what's the social needs connects we need? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay. Well, um, you can follow me on Twitter at A-M-R-E-E-S-E-0-7. And then also I have a website that's called Mambo Anthro, um, M-A-M-B-O Anthro.com. That talks a little bit about my research and my style and approach to doing research. And sometimes when I have time, I will write little reflections about teaching or research. for. Yeah, I've checked um, out your website. It's really cool, guys. So definitely check that out. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. And we're definitely going to add your book to our syllabus as well. Again, for anyone listening, the book is called Black Food Geographies, Race, Self-Reliance, and Food Access in Washington. And we'll catch you on another episode of the Ebony Tower podcast. This was awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at info at Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.